This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is Jake Saunders. I'm a family physician at McKady in Ogden, Utah. Today we're going to be talking about high-velocity injuries. These are injuries typically from skiing, snowboarding, or biking. They're often fractures, but several other important injuries can also be included. We'll also be talking about hand and wrist injuries, but that'll be a discussion on another podcast. We'll also talk about placing splints at that time as well. So in order to have a a fractured bone, it needs a lot of force. Typically with improved technology in today's sports, more individuals are taking more risks and moving at higher velocities. Many of these Individuals are also a little bit older as well, and they're starting to participate in biking and snow sports, despite their bones being a little bit weaker and having more frequency of osteopenia and osteoporosis. Subsequently, significant fractures have become more commonplace. A common area of injuries in high-velocity sports is the shoulder. I've worked two seasons at the Snow Basin Ski Clinic in Huntsville, Utah, and seen many of these injuries. I'll take a couple examples and case scenarios to discuss uh, the most frequently seen injuries. So imagine a patient coming into your ski clinic or possibly in the backcountry ski group that had a bad fall where his shoulder was abducted and externally rotated. He's holding it slightly out from his body and does not want to move it. You carefully remove his jacket and see a little divot in his right shoulder. He struggles to move his arm. You determine he likely has an anterior shoulder dislocation. It's important that you check the sensation along the axillary nerve distribution to make sure no nerve injury has occurred, which can sometimes occur with these shoulder dislocations. You would like to get an x-ray, but he refuses, or you're in the backcountry and you can't get it. You sit him down, tie a loop with a towel around his waist, and grab one of his friends to give counter-traction. You loop another towel around his elbow and apply constant downward pressure, alternating between external and internal rotation, After your patient takes a drink from his flask, he finally relaxes enough and you feel a clunk as his shoulder relocates. His pain is improved and he can move his shoulder freely. You place him in a sling for three weeks. If he was over 30 years old, it would be only one week. And tell him to dangle his arm out of the sling and rock it back and forth a few times a day to prevent a frozen shoulder. These are called pendulum exercises. After he leaves, you think about the differential. Had the diagnosis been not so clear? This could have been a shoulder or an AC separation with the rupture of the acromioclavicular ligament. To diagnose this, you would have needed an x-ray, especially a Zanka view, which looks upward at a 10 to 15 degree cephalid tilt. Um, But unless a severe grade 4 or 6, he would have needed a sling for a few days to a few weeks, depending on the severity anyways. Other potential causes are a clavicle fracture, which could have also been seen on that Zanka x-ray view. However, That would have also been treated with a sling, unless he was quite severe. However, these typically, we recommend referring to orthopedic surgery anyways. They are more often repairing these fractures with surgery these days. A not-to-miss diagnosis is a humeral fracture. I saw another patient that presented with a clavicular pain, and only after x-rays did we notice a proximal humeral fracture. We evaluated for any radial nerve damage, especially with a mid-shaft fracture, checking for extensor distribution sensation and any potential weakness along that area. We splinted her arm away from the body, around the elbow, and up the arm, 
and we sent her to the emergency department for a surgical consult. All right, our next patient comes into clinic. This is a young woman. She's accompanied by her friends, and she has not been wearing a helmet. She is a snowboarder and went off a big jump. She fell and hit her head. She was unconscious for about a minute, and she cannot remember much since the fall. She has a headache and neck pain with some blurry vision and sensitivity to light. Her speech sounds a little bit slurred. You are concerned about a concussion and a potential C-spine injury. You examine her for a basilar skull fracture, looking in the ears for a hemotympanum or a CSF leak. Also, you want to look behind the ears for any bruising and around the eyes. You do a quick neurological exam and find no focal deficit. Her neck is painful along the midline. With loss of consciousness greater than 5 seconds and midline neck tenderness, you determine she needs a CT scan of her head and neck and call an ambulance for transport. This you determine from the Canadian C-spine and head CT rules. With that, you place her in a C-collar and discuss treatment for a concussion with her friends. She's not going to remember any of this, so you need to talk to them. She should limit her activity, any screen time, and potential working for the next few days. Gradually advance activities only if she doesn't have symptoms. She should also avoid any NSAIDs, such as ibuprofen, in case of intracranial hemorrhage. However, you are going to get a CT scan to evaluate for any of potential risks of this. You discuss the concern for post-concussive syndrome, which is prolonged symptoms if she does not take the necessary treatment time now to recover. She is at a high risk due to severe initial symptoms, prior concussions, and also it is a lot more common in teenage girls to have uh, post-concussive syndrome. She also should not perform any activities that could re-injure her head. She should not continue to snowboard until she is symptom-free because there is a small but still significant risk of what is called second impact syndrome, which has about a 50% mortality. You record your thorough exam and tell her to follow closely with her PCP until her symptoms have resolved. Our next patient comes in after a ski injury, which he landed after he was felt off balance when he was leaning back on his skis. He had weight on the his planted knee and felt like his leg and knee hyperextended. He felt like he landed backwards. This is his first season skiing. You are concerned a little bit based upon that history for an ACL injury. He did feel some popping and feels like his knee gives out and he has a hard time walking on it. You perform an examination with the knee in a relaxed 30 degree flexed position. You move the knee back and forth with the lower leg and the upper leg held in place to see if there is increased laxity on that side versus the other. This is the Lachman test. You notice that he does have increased laxity on his right side. Additionally, you check for any medial meniscus or MCL injury as well. These are quite common with an ACL injury. MCL injuries would require less aggressive treatment. This would be diagnosed with a valgus stress and typically is more common with frequent sharp turns and is 25% of all ski injuries. They can usually bear weight though, and there may be some localized swelling, but there is no effusion. They usually have pain and laxity with that valgus stress and only need a hinged knee brace until their pain has improved. Whereas this patient with an ACL injury, after you've noticed the laxity on examination, he would need an MRI for diagnosis, but in your clinic you can get an x-ray to evaluate for any patibial plateau fracture. That would show maybe a double line sign underneath the, the tibial head. With this patient, you want to put him in a straight leg immobilizer and make him non-weight bearing. He needs to see orthopedic surgery. To discuss potential 
repair and the prolonged course of recovery, usually requiring significant physical therapy. All right, our next patient comes in. This is a young girl that is, this is her first time skiing. She's a nine-year-old and she fell over and had significant pain in her in her legs. She wasn't wearing her, her boots very tight as they had been hurting her. She had a quite significant fall and felt a pop and she has been unable to bear weight since the injury. You look at her leg and it is very tender and she is in a fair amount of pain. You need to get the boot off, which is quite difficult. In order to remove the boot, you have to undo it completely. You pop out the tongue and rotate it. Don't pull it straight off. Otherwise, the patient will have significant pain and you can displace a fracture. You look and notice there's no open fracture, but it is a visible deformity. This patient, when you send her for x-rays, has what is called a boot top fracture with the tibia and fibula both fractured. These have a high rate of non-union. And additionally, they also have a high risk for compartment syndrome. So you need to make sure and evaluate the pulses and sensation and tell the patient to do so as well to avoid this potential risk and to seek emergent care if any of these changes. You put her in a stirrup splint and a posterior leg splint after you determine that it is not significantly displaced. If it was significantly displaced or she had poor neurovascular function, you would need to reduce it in clinic. However, she is sent down to the emergency department for further evaluation. Our last patient for the day comes in. This is a 60-year-old woman that has been skiing for some time. She went off a jump and landed bad and hit in the back of her heel. She has some swelling over her anterior ankle with some tenderness, but she can't walk. And with her age, you decide to get an x-ray. The x-ray showed a calcaneal fracture that surprisingly was not actually consistent with her examination. You were thinking more of an ATFL, but that is not pretty common with a good ski boot. This patient needs a splint and would need surgery for repair for this. With these older patients, these are becoming more commonplace, though a calcaneal fracture is certainly not typical. It is something to keep in mind. These boot top and shear fractures are typically spiral fractures, and they're quite unstable, and they run a higher risk of open fractures and injury to the surrounding structures. Lower extremity spiral fractures can occur when a foot is locked in a fixed position and you have a sudden twisting force applied to the upper body. Typically, the bindings are designed to release from the foot, or in this case of a biking injury, a ski or snowboard, but it's not always the case. Nearly half of ski injuries are due to improper equipment, and 70% of lower leg fractures and knee injuries are when the bindings did not release properly. So you want to make sure and have good maintenance with those. I want to talk a little bit about some other injuries that you also will encounter with biking, skiing, and snowboarding. Bikes injuries are typically most often bruises and superficial wounds. Take a look at the uh, chapter on wound management and listen to the podcast for that for caring with those injuries. Two I want to highlight briefly are micro-riplash syndrome that can be from a poorly fitting bike that results in neck and back pain. You usually can just treat these conservatively with rest, ice, and over-the-counter pain medication. Additionally, you can have saddle symptoms. If the saddle is too low, you can get patellar and quadricep tendonitis. If it's too high, you can get saddle sores and chafing. You can also get pudendal nerve injury. To avoid this, you can stand intermittently during long rides. To determine the proper height of a bike saddle, sit on the seat with a heel on the pedal with a straight leg. It should be elevated in the back for men and depressed in the back for women. An additional ski injury is skier's thumb, and we'll talk about that in the wrist and hand 
section. Snowboarding injuries usually are occur with toe side or heel side. Toe side is when they fall face forward where their toes are pointing. These are abrupt and face first. They usually have shoulder injuries as discussed with the with a shoulder dislocation as above or some wrist injuries that we'll talk about on the next podcast. With heel side injuries, these can be on the butt, back, and sometimes on the head with concussions as well. Ankle injuries, as we discussed with the calcaneal fracture, are also potentially common. ATFL can sometimes be seen in these patients. These need to be braced and have early physical therapy to help. Keep in mind potential lateral process of the talus fractures. Those particularly can be noted with uh, these snowboarders going off jumps, and they sometimes will need a CT to diagnose. This can be kind of hard to pick up on x-ray. The neck of the talus is particularly at risk for avascular necrosis. Just a couple things to keep in mind. These are all injuries that can occur with high-velocity sports. You can see these in the backcountry, and you may also have similar injuries with your backcountry and wilderness medicine. Keep these in mind for whenever you have a patient with a fracture. We'll be talking a little bit more about some hand and wrist injuries specifically in the next podcast. 